Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be in God's house. It's good to be with his body, his church, whom he purchased, not with silver and gold, cheap things, but he purchased with the blood, his own precious blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. A friend, a friend, the sinner's friend. You know that? He's your friend this morning if you're a sinner. Why would you tarry? Why would you not come to him? All who come to me I will no wise cast out. Let's come to him now as we look to his word. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're just going to look at two verses, 17 to 19. You know, at this rate, you know, I, this, he might be my final book. Who knows? Uh, you know, there was one Puritan who I do believe preached through the book of Job for like something like 30-some years. I, I, couldn't fa- I can't fathom that. I, I really can't. Uh, I don't have the, the fortitude nor the infrastructure to deal with such. But um, I hope and pray it's been a blessing to you as it has been for me. You know, this, this book is so special. This book is life. I pray you're spending time in it outside of the the pulpit ministry here at All Saints. That you're seeking God as for treasure, as for gold. And when you do, he promises in Proverbs 2, you will find me and you will find me in, in all of his fullness when you search for him with all your heart. So let's look now as we look to Hebrews chapter 11. Once again, let me just... By way of reminder, the the preacher's been working through Hebrews 11, this great hall of faith. There are Christians in Hebrews who are in need of endurance. You see, some are ready to abandon their confidence. But the preacher here has better uh, hopes for them, that they're going to remain steadfast, that they're going to persevere through the trials, through the adversity, through all the, the, the struggles that is the Christian life. So the writer puts before them a series of Old Testament saints to serve as examples to to spur them on. Now, nothing like a good example to spur us on. Some of the the best things that you'll ever read as a Christian is Christian biography, right? Just seeing how God works, the living God works in time and space in the lives of real people, right? It's not just something a creed that's out there divorced from real life. No, it's a creed that is embodied and in, in written by his holy word. And we need to, to follow his leading. We need to follow him and look to him and look to the examples he's given us. Well, today the author turns our attention to one of the most significant events in the entirety of the Old Testament, the example of faith as it's seen in the testing of Abraham's faith and the call to sacrifice his son Isaac. We're going to begin reading in chapter 11, verse 1 to, 1 to 3, and then we're going to pick up at verse 17. This is God's holy word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the people of old received or gained their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God 
so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now turn over to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested or tried, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, his unique, one-of-a-kind son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring or, or children seed be named. He, that is Abraham, considered that God was able, was powerful enough even to raise him, that being Isaac, from the dead, from which figuratively or typologically speaking, he did receive him back. Thus far the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Let us go to him and ask his blessing. Our Lord and our God, we come before your holy word, this word that you have breathed out through your apostles and prophets of old, this living word that's sharper than any two-edged sword that brings life, eternal life, to sinners, desperate, needy sinners like us. So, Lord, we look away from ourselves and we look to the God who speaks in his holy word and to Jesus Christ, his Son, and to the Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts. Be with us now. Enable we by your Spirit to decrease that Christ might increase. Come, Holy Spirit, and be our teacher. Give me wisdom and clarity and courage to declare that which is written in all of its fullness, that your people might be equipped and might be encouraged to persevere and to endure and so run the race as to win the prize. We pray and we would ask this in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. God had asked Abraham to do quite a few things in his life that were difficult to do, were they not? Some very difficult circumstances. He was called to trust God. In Genesis 12, he was called to trust God and to leave his home there in Haran, to leave his family and to come and to follow him to a land that he'd never seen. And he'd also called to Abraham to trust and to believe God for an heir, an heir, a son who would come from his own body through the barren womb of Sarah. And through this son would come all the blessings of God to all the nations. But as hard as that was, as hard as all of that was, the call and the trust to believe Sarah would have a son, it pales in comparison. You see, it's it was just a warm-up, so to speak, for what God was calling Abraham to do in Genesis 22. God was now commanding Abraham to do the unthinkable, to offer up Isaac, the son of promise, as a burnt offering. You see, God was testing his friend, Abraham. He was testing his faith. Did Abraham really trust him? Did Abraham love him more than he loved Isaac? I have here in my notes this question, who here this morning enjoys test? 
Uh, many of us, some of us, some of us are quite apt to take tests, right? Some of us are very good at taking tests. Some of us are not. But God tests his children. James 1, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Beloved, the Bible is clear. God tests the faith of his children. As 1 Peter 1 says, the believer's faith is tested by fire that it may prove genuine, right? The real deal, the genuine article, and may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. You see, as we think about testing in the light of the New Testament revelation in the two texts that we've just read from James and 1 Peter, God's purpose in testing is twofold. One, to produce steadfastness. That is to produce perseverance. That is to produce endurance. Now that seems counterintuitive, does it not? And yet in the economy of God, in the wisdom of God, he uses testing to create endurance, perseverance where there is none. And secondly, the second purpose in testing is to prove our faith as genuine, that it's the real McCoy. So this morning, what I want to do, rather than give you an outline like I typically do, I want us to think through Abraham's faith in Genesis 22, 1 to 19. I want to think through a faith that is tested, that it might prove genuine, that it might prove to endure to the very end, to run so as to win the prize. For only he who overcomes has the right to the come to the tree of life. The Bible's clear. You must endure to gain the prize, to gain Christ. And then conclude with a, a few applications or a few lessons that we can learn from Abraham's testing that might help us reflect upon our own testing as Christians. Now, it's really hard as we begin to think about Abraham and the testing there in Genesis 22. And you might want to have your finger there in Genesis 22 in case you want to turn back to reference anything that I'm saying. Because I want to be in accord with the Word of God. And you, church, you want to be a Berean. The Bereans tested everything that Paul said by the Word of God. They had the plumb line. They had the rule. They had the, the calibrator out testing what Paul was saying as he was preaching. If Paul needed that, then surely I need that. But it's really hard for us, is it not, to, to wrap our minds around how difficult Abraham's test would have been. At one level, one level, if we're honest, it appears that what God has commanded Abraham to do was unthinkable. Really? And dare we say, morally reprehensible. To sacrifice your son? Isn't that a violation of the sixth commandment? Had not God instructed Noah earlier in Genesis? 
about the prohibition of murder and what every murderer uh, deserves. And saints, did this command not contradict everything God had promised Abraham? Last week we read Genesis 17, where God came and spoke to Abraham and Sarah and promised them, in spite of their old age and in spite of the barrenness of Sarah's womb, he being 100 and she being 90, like two old raisins, right? Not very fertile, not very plump, right? Not, not a pictures of health. But God promised them an heir, that God was going to give them a son. And this son would be the one through whom all the promises of God would be fulfilled. And it was so ridiculous and so beyond anything any man had ever thought, heard, or seen, that's the way God works, they named him Laughter. Now think about that. When you read Isaac in the Bible, you need to be thinking, Laughter, come here. Laughter, take the trash out. Laughter, obey your mother. It was so incredible. They named him Laughter. And through laughter, all the promises would be fulfilled. Let me just quote a few things from Genesis 17. No longer shall you call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and give you a son by her. Moses tells us that Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Shall a child be born to one who is 100 years old? Shall a 90-year-old Sarah bear a child? Abraham said to God, it was so ridiculous, Abraham began to debate God about the, the ridiculous nature of the promise. Oh, that Ishmael, you know, the son of the flesh, right? The, the one that we were trying to work out with Hagar to accomplish God's purposes through the, through the arm of flesh. You know, that son, oh, that he might live before you. God said, no. Sarah shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant everlastingly with him and his offspring after him. And now here in Hebrews eleven seventeen, the preacher reminds us that Abraham was he who had received this very promise. And in verse 18, we have a direct quote from Genesis 21, 12. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not just any son, but through Isaac was the promise guaranteed. And now God is commanding Abraham to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now clearly this is a contradiction, is it not? This is the rub. He's got the promise and he has the command. How can Abraham reconcile God's promise with God's command? If if Isaac died, how would God keep his promise? Saints here, while this particular situation with Abraham and Isaac is unique, one of a kind in redemptive history, unrepeatable, we come face to face with one of the most and most common ways, difficult ways, that God tests his children. He asks us to obey him even when it doesn't make sense. 
You think it made sense to the children of Israel as they stood there on the beach of the Red Sea with the Egyptians behind them, chasing them? Did it make sense to stand and behold the salvation of your God? Do nothing. Just stand there and see and behold the greatness of the name of our God. Do you think it made any sense when God called the children of Israel to to march around Jericho seven times? That's how you're going to defeat the enemies of God? Or in Chronicles, when, when God calls Israel to go to war and he tells them and instructs them clearly, I want you to put the choir out front. Not the mighty warriors of Israel. Not the armament of Israel. No, I want you to put the sons of Korah out front. They're going to sing of the victory of a God. And I'm going to give it. You see. He asks us to obey him even when it doesn't make sense. And one of the lessons here for us is ours is not to have all the answers. Ours is to obey Obedience is better than sacrifice. Saints, as difficult as it was for Noah to believe concerning the coming flood and the command to build the ark there in the middle of the desert, it pales in comparison to what God is now asking Abraham to do, to sacrifice his son. And as the text is so gentle and and so powerful and so strong, who is a God like this who puts these things together that seemingly are paradoxical? You know, the son that you love, your only son. I want you to take him to Moriah and sacrifice him there. Well, we're told there in verse 17 of chapter 11 of Hebrews Notice what it says, by faith, what is faith? The assurance, the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abraham, when tested, offered up Isaac, his only son, his only begotten, as it were. The word here is monogenes in Greek. It's unique. He's one of a kind. He's the son through whom the promise would come. Yes, I want you to sacrifice him. I I know you have Ishmael, but it's not through Ishmael the promise would be fulfilled. It's, It's through Isaac, the son of promise. I want you to sacrifice him. Beloved, by faith, Abraham recognized that which was for him an insolvable problem was not a problem for his God. Abraham, by faith, believed that God, who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power, out of nothing, was able to raise the dead if he needed to. Did Abraham have all the answers? Hardly. He had the promise and he had the command. Could he reasonably, rationally reconcile 
the promise with the command? I don't think so. But as I was meditating on the text, there were two things that came to me as I was thinking about it. He, he knew two things. First, he knew that the believer's obedience to God's commands cannot and will, will never negate God's promise. Do you know that? That when God calls you to obey and you find it to be in conflict with his promise, yours is to obey. God's is to fulfill his promise. You must obey. And secondly, we're told in the text that, that Abraham considered, what did he consider? He considered God's ability. This word able here is the word from which we get the word power. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the dunamis. He considered God's power. He believed that God was able, if necessary, and would raise Isaac from the dead. Now, saints, knowing these two things, Moses tells us in Genesis 22:3, after receiving the command... Notice this, the beauty of the text of the word of God. So Abraham arose early. Do you think he slept the night before? Rose early in the morning, taking two servants and his son with the wood and went to the place God had told him to go. Before I go any further in explaining and exploring with us and with you the nature of Abraham's response and obedience, I want to take a moment to note how Abraham did not respond. First, Abraham did not bargain with God. He's God, I'm not. He's my maker. I'm not the maker, I'm the creature. I have to obey my maker. Moses does not record for us any follow-up questions that Abraham might ask or did ask God, what he really meant. I think I heard you say to sacrifice. It's not recorded for us. He trusted and obeyed. He trusted and obeyed God knowing that trust and obedience is what makes the believer happy in Jesus. For there's no other way. Right, Kathy? She's going to play it. I'll bet money. you got a million dollars. She'll play it at the conclusion. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. He knew it. By faith, he knew it. Secondly, Abraham does not ask God to pick someone else. Moses did that. Remember that? Uh, uh, I'm a stuttering, a stammering fool. Take someone else and God in his condescension and his grace. Well, you can go with Aaron, your brother. He'll speak. Thirdly, at no time did Abraham ask God why. He doesn't ask God for an explanation. 
about how this is going to work out. God, you, you've, you've given me this promise, and now this is this command. I'm, I'm having a little difficulty here. No, early the next morning, Abraham arose, cut some wood, got two servants, took his son, and went to the place. God called him to go. And then lastly, Abraham didn't tell God he wasn't doing it. Jonah did. Didn't he? I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going 180 degrees the other way. I'm going to Tarshish. I'm not going to Nineveh. Lest God, who's full of hesed kindness and mercy and does not delight in the death of the wicked, would spare those wicked Ninevites. Would spare sinners out there. We've got to protect our own, right? That's the way he was thinking. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what Abraham must have been thinking. We really can't be sure, but we can be sure of is that Abraham's faith was proved genuine. More precious than gold, wasn't it? It had been refined in the fire of testing. And while Abraham did not know exactly how God was going to fulfill his promise concerning Isaac if he sacrificed him, he was assured that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Look at verse 19 in Hebrews 11. He, that is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, is there anything in Genesis 22 that would support such faith in a resurrection. Is not maybe the writer to the Hebrews embellishing a little bit? You know, I'm not sure I read that there. Is there a hint that God would come through with a resurrection, figuratively, typologically speaking? Yes. Genesis 22.5. Now, remember, he's been traveling for three days. 72 hours with the weight of the command upon him to sacrifice his only son, the one whom he loves. And now he sees Moriah up ahead. And with his servants, they arrive. And Abraham said to his young men in 22.5 in Genesis, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go up and worship and we will come again. It's in the plural, church. By faith, Abraham, when tested, obeyed. Believing, considering, calculating with God's math that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. I and the boy will go up and worship and come again to you. While Abraham did not exactly know how God was going to reconcile his promise with the command, he did not doubt God's goodness nor his ability to fulfill his word. But there's one word in that verse in Genesis 22:5 that just might rub us the wrong way. It's the word worship. And you're thinking, I got to get a tea. 
for us non-sports folk, that's a timeout. I got to get a pause. I got to get a commercial break. Worship. Abraham, you're saying that this God of yours has just commanded you to sacrifice your only son, the one whom you love, and now you're going to go and worship? Yes, that's, that's exactly what Abraham is saying to us this morning. Beloved, could it be that going to worship, now follow me, follow the logic of God, of his word, could it be that going to worship, giving thanks for his faithfulness, for his grace, for his power, his goodness, his greatness, in doing so that Abraham found his faith strengthened, strengthened to obey the very command that seems at cross purposes with the promise. And you know the answer to that question, rhetorically? Yes, you betcha. Remember Job, after losing everything in Job 1, 20 to 22? Then Job arose, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and you know what the text says? He worshipped. You see, there's some things worse than death. There's some things worse than losing everything. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's faith. That's the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Do you have that kind of faith? I'm not asking you to have a lot of it. You don't need a lot of it. Do you even have that much? I wish I had some mustard seed right here. Just to show you, to illustrate it for you. You see, it's, it's not your faith. Faith is the conduit. Faith is the hand that grabs the object. But the object is Jesus Christ. His is the glory, the power, and the kingdom. You see, He's God. I'm not. Verse 19, we're told, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. This verb considered is the word that Paul uses. Now follow me. This is great. Great stuff. Don't miss it. Great stuff. Romans 8.18, where Paul describes himself as reckoning, as calculating on the basis of firm evidence. Paul says there, for I consider, I calculate, I engage my mind as an image bearer, I reckon, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
Now that's some reckoning, isn't it? Some calculating. To consider, to calculate with Paul, and to calculate and consider with Abraham here does not mean to guess. You know, I think it's 51%. Nope, that's not what's going on here. Rather, it means that after you have considered all the facts, in this case, as Abraham considered God's goodness, as Abraham reckoned and calculated God's faithfulness and power, what made perfect sense to Abraham in this moment with the promise and the command was to obey God. That's what made sense. Beloved, Abraham had a track record with God, his friend. He had already tasted and seen that God had been good to him. The lines for him had already fallen in pleasant places. It wasn't to a vacuum that the command came. No, it was into a grander narrative of experiential knowledge that God had proved himself faithful. His mercies were new every morning. How could I not? Now, I might not understand how God is going to resurrect Isaac, but I know that he will because he has already said, he who is immutable, infallible, has already promised through Isaac the promise would come. God's not going to revoke anything. He can't. He's not a liar like me, like you. You see, Abraham had a knowledge of God that enabled him to obey in spite of everything around him and in him telling him not to. Now, his heart, do you think his heart was telling him, yeah, go to Moriah. Sacrifice your only son. You know, the one you love, the one you waited for 24, 25 years, rather, who's now approximately 14, 15 years of age. Yeah, that one. One in whom the promise is going to come. I want you to go and sacrifice him. But God's prior faithfulness had enabled Abraham to obey. He had the faithfulness in the call in Genesis 12. He had the cutting of the covenant in Genesis 15. He had the promise to him and Sarah in Genesis 17. And now he has the actual birth of Isaac in Genesis 21. All of this was experiential knowledge that God had deposited into Abraham's heart, creating faith where there was none before. You see, Abraham calculated and reasoned that if God was able to bring Isaac even into existence through the womb, through the uterus, now let's just make it what it is, of Sarah, she's 90, and me 100, The God who spoke all things by the word of his power and created everything, the heavens and the earth and the sea and so I'm calculating that God can raise him from the dead. I believe it. Do I understand it all? Nope. But I believe it. The preacher tells us here in Hebrews 11, all this was figurative or typological this resurrection of Isaac. God, judged, God did just that, right? As Abraham was ready with a knife in hand to slay his son, God intervened. 
and stopped his friend from slaying the throat of his son that was now laying on the altar with the wood. You know, the son that went up the mountain with the wood on his back? Yeah, that son. The monogenes. The only begotten son. Yeah, that son. The angel of the Lord. Abraham. Abraham. Here I am, Lord. Do not lay your hand on the boy. Again, he's about 15. Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see, beloved, Isaac was as good as dead. And in a figurative sense, when Isaac's wife was spared, Abraham received his son of the promise back from the dead. Figuratively speaking, what happened at Mount Moriah that day foreshadowed the experience of another father and son. 2,000 years later at Calvary. Isaac and his deliverance from death function as a type. The word here literally is the word figurative, is the word parable. It functioned as a parable or type of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And did you notice all the parallels as Mr. Hutton was reading the text? I, I hope you're reading the text of Scripture Christologically. These are the Scriptures that bear witness to me, saith the Lord Jesus. Just a couple of the parallels, just to bring them to your attention. The love of Abraham for his only son Isaac. God the Father's love for his only begotten son Jesus Christ. And just as Abraham was to be the executioner of his son, Isaac, so also we are told it was God the Father in Isaiah 53, 10, who put his son to death. Concerning Messiah, Isaiah writes, it was the will of the Lord, that is the Father, to crush him. He has put him to death. And beloved, don't overlook the obedience of Isaac, right? He's a young man. His dad is a hundred. Let's be honest. He could have resisted, right? Let's just be real. That's what it is. He could have resisted. I'm not doing it. But as Abraham yielded to God's will, who yields his will to his How beautiful our God. So also Christ came to do not his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. He was not forced, but in love he laid down his life for sinners. He laid down his life for you. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. You who are enemies, far off, without hope, without God, objects of wrath, but God, in his love, the Father gave the Son for you. And the Son gives himself for you. 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit now in love call you by the Spirit to repent and to trust. To believe. But as I was thinking about this, doesn't Isaac not only foreshadow Christ, but does he not also foreshadow you and me? Again, are we not the ones who deserve to die for our sin? But God in his grace provides a substitute. This is, the Christian, this is Christianity 101. This is the marrow of Christianity. Substitutionary atonement. He provided his only begotten son, you know, the one whom he loved. His monogenes, his unique son. That's the one. You see, there would be no angel that would call there on that Good Friday at 3 p.m. to stay the Father's hand. No, on that day, the wrath of God would fall. It would fall on his son for sinners. That he who knew no sin might become sin. Not just any sin generically, right? Let's just get real. Not just sin out there. No, he became my sin. That I in him might become the righteous of God. That's what God's done. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You were ungodly. And in Adam, outside of Jesus Christ, you still are ungodly. Now you've had a shower. You might be nice. You might be washed up. But outside of Jesus Christ, you're alienated from God. You're without hope. Apart from the commonwealth of the promises, the people of God. But God. You see, Isaac's life was spared. And a sacrificial lamb died in his place. So we also, when we were without hope, without God, Christ died for us. That today, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Done business with God? Let me give you a couple things just to close with. Some lessons. Note the timing. Note the timing of Abraham's testing. He's much older in the faith now. He's not a young recruit. He's an old dog, if you will. He's walked with God for some time. A.W. Pink says this, It's not the raw recruit, but the scared veteran who was assigned a place in the front of the battle. Now, this does not mean the younger Christian will not be tested, but rather it means this, that the mature believer must not think that the battle is behind him. Some of you are old. Some of us are old. We have a tendency, well, now we can just coast into our heavenly inheritance. That's not the case. We must fight the good fight until we can fight it no more, until our last breath. Secondly, Abraham's faith or rather test, came not only when he was older, but also when he was, notice this, when he was the happiest. Don't miss that. 
Do not miss that. Abraham was incredibly blessed. He had waited 25 years for this son to be born, and now he'd received him, and the son's now about 15 years of age. And now God's calling him. Right at this point, at this juncture, at his happiest point in his life, when he has the promise incarnate before him, standing there, laughter. He's standing right there. That Abraham faced his greatest test of faith. God will often do this. Remember Job. The word of God tells us there was no one like him in all the earth. God's evaluation of Job was that he was blameless. And it was precisely then upon God's evaluation that the Lord permitted Satan to afflict him. You see, when circumstances seem the most conflicting to our faith, when they only confuse and puzzle us, and very little makes sense, the only solution in that moment, in that hour, when you have more questions than you have answers, is by faith, believe the word of God. When Satan comes with his fiery darts and he tests you, you, like your elder brother, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. Go to the Word of God. This morning, I want to conclude with this, asking you, I put it in the first person singular, Am I going to believe in my heart? Am I going to look within? Am I going to look to my circumstances? Or am I going to believe in the God who spared not his own son for me? Is this God or is he not worth more than all the riches and comforts of life? I'm asking you to make that. Ask that question and then answer it for yourself. William Lane, a phenomenal expositor of Hebrew, says, When Abraham obeyed God's call to leave Ur, he simply gave up his past. Here at Mount Moriah, in sacrificing Isaac, he was asked to surrender his future as well. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready this morning to sacrifice your future? to God, to do whatever he calls you to do, even if it doesn't make sense, you can't reconcile it. Are you ready to trust and obey? Are you ready to be happy in Jesus, for there's no other way? You see, ours is to trust and obey God's commands. God is to fulfill his promises. In 1 Peter 1, 6-7, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you going to trust him? You going to trust him with the future? This whack world we live in? institutions are dissolving before our very eyes. You think it can't get any worse? You cut the news on it, it gets worse. You stop saying it. I've stopped saying it. Because there other refuges have I none. 
Do you have other refuges? They're all going to perish. They're built with sand. The sand of those other refuges are going to wash out. There's only thing, one thing that remains, and that's the word of God. And blessed is that man who builds his life on that word, on that rock. So when the storms of life come, and they will, and the test comes, as you build your life on that rock, the rock of this word, those storms can do nothing to you. It doesn't mean it might feel good and feel well and happy and all glad. No. But ultimately, you're going to arrive in your heavenly inheritance because he who began the good work in you is faithful. That's his name. And he's going to complete it and bring you all the way home. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The sinner's friend. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, there is none like you. You're the living God. How could there be any like you? You and you alone. One God. Three persons. Same in substance. Equal in power and glory. Oh, Father, may we magnify your name. May we praise your name. May we offer a sacrifice of praise. For, Lord, you are more valuable, more, more precious than gold, more valuable than silver, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's none like you. We praise you and we thank you. And we pray now and ask that you bless us as we come to the table to feed on Jesus Christ. Bring us the, the assurance that the sign and seal promises. We pray and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.